All right, let's turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. Boy, we are moving. We are moving right along. We are moving as quick as a tortoise, but we're moving. And uh, <clears throat> anytime you hear about the 4th of July, you know, you, you hear about it uh, like a month before with the advertisements in the paper, right? And you, you know, you're being told, you know, big 4th of July savings coming up and and, and so you're getting all excited about it and you start buying your hot dogs and your buns and everything else for your cookouts, you know, two or three weeks in advance, you know, because you've got to be ready. And the, so you're hearing about it, but the fireworks don't start until the 4th of July. We get to the book of Revelation and we, we're, we're kind of given that same kind of Action, you know, as it were. You're, you're, you're told about things that are yet to come. And then we're told what happens when those things do come. But they don't happen until they happen. And when we see prophetic literature, we, we realize that we're, we're being given statements about what is to come. And then we get restatements. And the restatement is, is is something of a picture of what's going to exactly happen so that we can be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. And as a church, it is a matter of being prepared for the coming of Jesus for his church first. And then we've seen this expansive passage from chapter 6 to where we are now and of course carried on to the very end that deals with what takes place after the church is taken out of the way and judgment begins to come. We get to see the fireworks before the fireworks take place. My hope and prayer is that any time that we encourage people to read the book of Revelation, and as always we say, you know, we do need to study it because, because the truth of what is yet to come has been provided for us by the truths that have already been fulfilled. In other words... All of the prophecies that pointed to Jesus' first coming, every prophecy in the scripture that dealt with Jesus coming to this earth in the flesh, every one was fulfilled. Every one. Over 300 scriptures. And every one was fulfilled. We see prophetic literature then also point to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and all of the ones that are given to us dealing with the preparation for the coming of Jesus, those have been fulfilled. Now we're seeing Scripture being fulfilled, pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ that is yet to happen, but we know it's going to happen. 
So what I'm preparing you for here in this particular chapter, because it is a, a, a chapter of preparation for the final judgments that are to come. Since chapter 6, we've been given the uh, seal judgments, the breaking of the seven seals, to reveal the kind of judgment that's going to take place on the earth after the church is taken out of the way, so that God can deal with Israel and so that God can deal with the unbelievers and, and bring judgment. Though everyone was given an opportunity to hear the gospel and, and respond to it, but unfortunately many people even in our day and time are not responding to it. By the way, can we get a little bit of that ring out because it's even distracting me so I can imagine how it might be distracting some of you out there. It's too ringy, you know. All right, so we'll get that taken care of as we speak. But chapter 15 is is really a, a chapter of preparation now but I also look at it this way how gracious gracious and merciful God is that he always gives time for people to respond to the truth of the gospel and respond to the truth of what Christ has done for us to be saved from this wicked generation and from every wicked generation that, is, that has taken place in all of history, from the time of the fall of man in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And it's, it's, it's as if the Lord is giving one more opportunity, one more chance, as it were, for people to respond. Okay, this hasn't been enough. There's one more judgment coming. Actually, a series of judgments coming, but the gospel has been preached. How many more will respond to it? And as I said this Sunday, in our dealing with the ABCs of prophecy, you know, there are going to be believers on the earth when Jesus comes a second time. There's going to be all this judgment taking place, but there will be those who survive primarily those in in Israel who have now realized what is happening because they have realized that the scriptures are being fulfilled you see so as we look at Revelation chapter 15 and, and, and as we have done on every chapter we've kind of taken the beginning of a chapter for an introduction to the next step of where we are I want to do the same with this but I want to read the whole chapter to you because it's only eight verses So let's look at uh, Revelation 15. In verse 1 it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Can we still cut down on that, that ringing, please? Thank you. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast. Now, if you remember back uh, in chapter beginning of chapter 14, there was those there there were the 144,000 who actually were victorious over over the beast because they would not take the mark of the beast, uh, which we have talked about already. So it goes on and says over his image because this is one verse. Let's go back. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast. 
over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in bright, uh, pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. And then one of the four living creatures, and that's in heaven, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. One of the key devices in the study of prophetic literature as well as the study of Hebrew literature in general, is the use of stating and restating certain events. In many cases, a statement is given generally, while the restatement of, of, of that uh, event is much more detailed. And this can clearly be seen, for example, in the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where in Genesis 1, we're given kind of a general uh, understanding of the creation. We see, uh, you know, day 1, day 2, day 3, all the, the days uh, of creation, very generally speaking. And then more specifically in chapter 2, actually dealing with the same material, not another creation, as it were. So it's clearly seen in creation in the creation account of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but it's also observed in prophecy, statement and restatement. John has sketched a scene for us in the book of Revelation. Of course, remember, John is receiving this from God. It's a vision from the Lord to give to us about the future. But John has sketched a scene for us in the book of Revelation of judgment on the earth at the time of the tribulation period that he will expand upon to the very end in the remainder of the prophecy. Remember, for example, go back, if you will, to chapter 6. If you remember this, verses 12 through 17, it says, I looked, and again, this is the Apostle John speaking, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, 
and who is able to stand. John is giving us this picture of this, this judgment period that is, that is yet to come, but, but it, it's very clear here that it's speaking of the great day of his wrath. That is the day of the Lord. So John is, will, of course, take us through this same material, just something that we just saw here in chapter 6. He's going to take us through the same material, but now in greater detail. That, that's already happened a few times, which is another reminder to us that the book of Revelation is not strictly chronological in its makeup. It, it doesn't follow a chronology, you know, one thing, one event after another in time. We are oftentimes taken back a little bit, and then we see a little more detail given. So as we move into chapter 15 this evening, we will see that it is a prelude to the coming bowl or vile judgments. Bowl judgments, like a big bowl. I don't know if you saw the picture earlier, but there were these angels coming with these big bowls. They, they had the bowls of judgment. We uh, sometimes have them translated as vials, V-I-A-L. A vial is a container. So containers of judgment. And remember, there were seal judgments. And I, I didn't finish this thought earlier. But we, we studied the seal judgments that led us into the trumpet judgments that have led us now into the bowl judgments. There were seven seals. The seventh seal was always the one that opened up the next set of, of judgments, which were the uh, trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet opens up the... Uh, the seven uh, uh, bowl judgments. Try to make sure I have them all in the right order. Uh, the seventh trumpet op opens up now the bowl judgments. So, but now we've had this uh, major uh, uh, interlude, as it were, between the judgments. But nonetheless, uh, it is going to take place. So we're going to see the prelude here, here in chapter 15 to the coming judgments. The last judgments of God, by the way, which will take place in chapter 16, or at least begin for us, again, the picture of those judgments in chapter 16. It's been very clear in our study of the book of Revelation that God's judgment is coming upon this world in what is called that great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, there is a, a distinction. If we see or hear about the day of the Lord, we are talking about judgment. It is not a single day, it is a long time period. In this case, it is a seven-year period. We've, we've kind of talked about that a lot in the earlier parts of our study of the book of Revelation. But I want to make a distinction that there is the day of Christ. And the day of Christ is different. As a matter of fact, the day of Christ is what we're looking for as the church. The day of Christ would be the day that Jesus comes for his church. It is the day that he spoke of in John 14. I know I say it a lot, but I love that passage. Don't, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you will be also. Now, folks, that is exciting to hear. That is what we're waiting for. We are waiting for the day of Jesus Christ, not the day of Antichrist. So in contrast, you can say that the day of the Lord, which is the beginning of his judgments, 
is more of the day of looking for Antichrist. I'm not looking for that. The churches doesn't have to look for that. We look for the day of Christ. So I just want to make that a little distinction, and we'll make it again as we continue on in our teaching of, of prophecy. But why are some people who claim to be Christians today being scripturally dishonest? It's really important that we deal with this issue today. Why are some people who claim to be Christians being scripturally dishonest? You see, for many, this idea of hell and judgment has been edited out of their minds from the scriptures. It's been edited for them out of the scriptures, but it is out of their mind that they edit these things. Why does there have to be any talk about hell and why does there have to be any talk about judgment? I mean, people are refusing to believe that a God of love can also be a God of judgment, even though Jesus spoke more about hell and judgment uh, than anyone else in the Scriptures. And you may remember, uh, some of you might remember this. It it was a book that was written a, a while back. But a number of years ago, this book was called Embraced by the Light. It was written by a lady named Betty Eady. This book was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 40 weeks, including five weeks as number one. In November of 1973, Edie allegedly died after undergoing a hysterectomy and returned five hours later with the secrets of heaven revealed to her by Jesus. At that moment when you hear that, your antenna should go up. That to this one woman who died and is now allowed to come back to life, Jesus revealed to her the secrets of heaven. Now, Edie tells us that Jesus, and I quote, Jesus never wanted to do or say anything that would offend me while she visited heaven. In Betty Edie's mind... Jesus seemed to be relegated to the role of happy tour guide in heaven, not the Savior of the world who died on the cross of Calvary. But as I mentioned, people really just went out and bought this book. And there were just so many problems with the book. And while there are many problems with this book, Embraced by the Light, two things stood out to me. Edie said that while in heaven, she learned that Adam and Eve didn't really fall. Adam and Eve didn't really fall. Instead, Eve, and I quote again, made a conscious decision to bring about conditions necessary for her progression and her initiative was used to finally get Adam to partake of the fruit. So what, was, what is called the fall is not, was not really a fall, but something that really just had to take place for Eve as a woman, you know, to finally have her progression. I don't know where you get that from this, you know, from, especially from the Scriptures. But let's go on. The second problem, problem is really more significant. And that is that uh, Betty Eady endorses, or endorsed, I should say, the, the Mormon claim that salvation is obtainable after death. Now, how many of you know that that's not true because the Scriptures teach us something different, right? (laughs) 
First, we die, then the judgment. That's pretty much what the scripture says. So, she spoke of this claim that salvation is obtainable after death and then expands on that doctrine to include the belief that everyone will eventually be saved. Universalism. So, if, if everybody's just going to all be saved eventually, then why is there any need in the scriptures to mention hell, to mention a, 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 a judgment of, of any kind? Or as they say, hell, fire, and brimstone. Why are the mentions there? If eventually everybody's going to be saved. Why, don't, why, why did we even buy a Bible in the first place? I think that sometimes people buy Bibles so that they can actually have a magnet for dust on their coffee table. Don't you think? Because if you never touch it, the only thing you do is dust it off once a year. Folks, that's not what the Bible is about. So there's no real need for hell and judgment if, if everybody's going to be saved eventually. Most of you have probably not ever heard of a, a woman named Rosemary Radford Ruther, a former professor of feminist theology at uh, a number of, uh, of uh, seminaries, one Garrett Evangel Evangelical Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, or Il Evanston, Illinois, and a self-proclaimed eco-feminist. That's what she calls herself, an eco-feminist. Man, I tell you what, uh, what, I don't even know what that is. But I suppose she knows. She, well, she's an eco-feminist, she calls herself. And once she stated her new style of Christianity. By the way, she's, she's a Catholic uh, theologian. I'm sure the Catholics don't want to claim her either. But, uh, but anyway, she once stated her new style of Christianity in this manner. And I quote, Mother Goddess, who by the way she calls Gaia, Mother Goddess is reawakening and we can begin to recover our primal birthright, the sheer intoxicating joy of being alive. We can open our eyes and see that there is nothing to be saved from, no God outside the world to be feared or obeyed. Now this is a theologian in essence saying there is no God. But Mother Goddess, Gaia, which I guess some people might even call Mother Nature as well, or some kind of a feminine trait, as it were, to contradict the scriptures about God and about Jesus, who, by the way, are usually spoken of in the masculine sense, though at times, and we have to admit those, and they're, but there are real good reasons why, at times there are certain characteristics that are spoken of from the a, a feminine uh, perspective in the Hebrew language, but nonetheless, he is who he is, and he is called he in the scriptures. So all of that aside, this is the, this is the kind of thinking that is going on today. A universalist type of thinking, a, a, a completely, you know, let's not even look at the scriptures whatsoever. Uh, you just have the joy of being alive. One New Age leader has stated this, and I quote, The institutional Christian churches 
tell us that Jesus was the only Son of God that He incarnated as a human in order to die on the cross in a substitutionary act as a penalty for our sins and thereby save the world. But that is a sad caricature, he says, a pale reflection of the true story. Jesus did not save people. He freed them from the bondage of the ego. The significance of the incarnation and resurrection is not that Jesus was a human like us, but rather that we are gods like him. Now again, that was a number of years ago, but what they're all saying is, there is no hell below us, above us only sky. You all know where that's from? That's, that's from a song by John Lennon called Imagine. Real popular song, you know, for many years, still being used in commercials, still being used, you know, for one thing or another. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. But it it is always just stirred in me, this, this thought that people say, oh, imagine there's no heaven. Do you know what John Lennon was really saying? He, he was actually fulfilling the words of the Apostle Paul. When Paul said that every person ever born knows that there is a God. The only difference is that man chooses to say they don't believe in God. But in Romans chapter 1, if you examine that passage very clearly... Paul is saying, everyone knows there is a God. The difference is, man chooses not to believe. So when he says, imagine there's no heaven, he's fulfilling the words of Paul by saying, you have to imagine there's no heaven because there is a heaven. We don't want there to be a heaven. We only want there to be what we know and what we see. And, and there's no hell below us, above us only sky. I mean, let's, you know, drink some Coca-Cola together. Let's, you know, or snort Coke or whatever they do. Folks, everyone is attacking the Word of God because the Word of God is true, but they don't want to believe it. Prophecy makes it very clear. The fulfilling of prophecy has made it very clear. The nation of Israel being in existence as it is today and has been a nation for all the years that it was before the diaspora or before the dispersion. Folks, there is a God because there is a word of God that says to us what is true. People have to deny it by taking on these, these really new agey, you know, but it's all the same lie. It just goes back to Genesis 3, when, when Satan, as the serpent says, did God really say that? So, no hell below us, above us only sky, no God of judgment is necessary. Now you have the emerging church with most of its leaders giving us universalistic type of teachings. Rob Bell, uh, uh, Love Wins, I believe, was something 
I think that's the name of one of his books, Love Wins. Or, uh, but anyway, that, that particular book in it, he talks about how he doesn't you know, believe that there is a hell, that there, there is no hell. People will all eventually be saved. And, and this is a guy that has, has been leading thousands of people in a church. Where is he leading them? He's leading them away from the truth into this kind of judgment. All I can tell you is that the time has run its course and God's wrath will be poured out completely upon a Christ-rejecting world. That, that there is such a thing as sin and the Lord is going to judge it as significant in chapter 15 of Revelation. God will judge the sinner who stands outside of Christ in his own sins, his own righteousness, which is like filthy rags. The opportunity to enter into his rest is coming to close, or is coming to a close, and man's final destiny is about to come before him. That is what is the reality. That is what we have to admit when we look at the world and see the evil that is in this world today. The evil that was predicted thousands of years ago. The evil that the prophets warned us about. The evil that Jesus warned us about. The evil that the apostles warned us about. And at the very same time, all of them declared that the answer was salvation through Jesus Christ. You might say, well, did the prophets really do that? Just read Isaiah 53. That points to Jesus. There is a solution. There is a hope. And most of us, and I hope that all of us in this room, have come to that hope in Jesus Christ. Believing that He came to this earth, took upon Himself flesh, and died on the cross for our sins, and shed His blood for our forgiveness, and rose again from the dead. That we who believe will identify with Him and rise when the time comes. Death has no longer any dominion for us and upon us, and neither will sin. And in effect, as Paul teaches us in the book of Romans, it shouldn't have an effect upon us. Jesus overcame sin and death for us. And let me add one other thing. Jesus overcame sin, death, and hell for us. Because there is a hell. I want you to remember this. If you're still in Revelation 6, Revelation 6 go back a few verses to verse 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, how holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These being the tribulation saints, and the saints who would die for the sake of Christ. And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Because, as I said, there are going to be those who have trusted in the Lord during that time. There will be those who trust in the Lord during that time of the tribulation period. And there's a number that will be completed of those who will die. And Jesus and the Lord already knows that number. But not all will die. 
Many, many will be alive. Nations are made up of people, as I said on Sunday. And they will be the ones who see Jesus come. And then they will see that Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and, and sit on the throne of David and reign for, for a thousand years on this earth. So let's look at the prelude to the bold judgments, which is this one verse that we're going to deal with today, Revelation 15 verse 1, but I want to read verses 1 through 4 because this is the prelude and we'll get into the rest of it next time. Verse 1 says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire in those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. John opens this section by telling us of another great and marvelous sign that he saw in heaven. Seven angels who are going to pour out the last seven plagues, the bold judgments, upon a Christ-rejecting world. I have said before that the number seven is significant because it speaks of completeness. And just in case you might miss it, John specifically tells us that in these last series of judgments, the wrath of God will be complete. The wrath of God will be complete. The Greek word that John uses for complete there, if we'll go back over to uh, uh, verse 1, the last word on that, in, that, in that verse, for in them the wrath of God is complete. The word for complete is in the Greek teleo, T-E-L-E-O, teleo, which means to mark an end of or bring to a determined goal. To mark an end of or to bring to a determined goal. This is the completion of the plan of God against a Christ-rejecting world. The seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, in a sense, were just a warm-up for what is about to come forth. See, these are going to be the most intense of the judgments that are poured out. Now, I'm not taking a a detour here, but I, I want you to bear with me and follow me through this. In John chapter 19, verse 30, as Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, dying for the sins of the world, This is what Jesus said. John 19, verse 30. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In other words, he said, It is finished. And he died. But I want you to look at those words, It is finished, because in the Greek it is one word. It is the word tetelestai. Tetelestai. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. 
tetelestai. And you might hear that word teleo in that. That's what you need to understand here. It is finished is one Greek word, tetelestai, which comes from the same root word that John used in Revelation 15 verse 1, teleo. Keep in mind that the words that Jesus spoke are very significant. It is finished. He is not speaking of himself. He's not speaking of his life just being over. As if he was saying that he went too far and now everything was finished and it was too late. Because there are some people who think that. That Jesus, you know, guys, oh, the cross was his defeat. No! Boy, I wish people would just read the Bible and read all of the book of John and read all the Gospels, especially where Jesus would tell his disciples, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Now, why don't they read that part? Oh, my goodness. They say, oh, Jesus died on the grave. didn't finish. I just want to slap him. He wasn't speaking of himself when he said it is finished. My life is over. It's too late. No. The word to telestai can also be translated... Paid in full. Paid in full. And so the Lord was saying to us that His plan of redemption was completed as He paid the penalty for our sins. You see, it is the Apostle Paul who said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He said, For He made Him, God made His Son, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We who believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and shed His blood for our forgiveness. And if you're still not clear about this, listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The certificate, as it were, that was speaking out against our sins... Jesus nailed it to the cross. Well, what was nailed on the cross? He was. In other words, all our sins were nailed to the cross of Calvary, paid in full. And now, as we are in Christ, we have, in a sense, the word tetelestai written across our lives. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. You have tetelestai written across your life. Paid in full. It is finished. You don't have to pay anything. The price 
has been paid by Jesus. You see from the cross of Calvary, we see Jesus' arms open wide for all to receive Him. And for Him to receive all who come to Him. And from the cross we now move to the fierceness of His wrath that will be poured out upon that Christ-rejecting world. And as we will see in chapter 16, the bold judgments come firing in rapid succession over a very short period of time. God's wrath is exploding forth as these judgments come to an end. As a matter of fact, I want you to see something in Revelation 16, verse 17. Just go forward a little bit. It tells us, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl. You notice, we're going to be getting to Revelation 16 here pretty soon, and it only takes us 17 verses to get to the seventh bowl. Rapid succession. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. By the way, it isn't the same word as to telestai, but has a very same sense to it. The judgments now are done. The phrase in verse 1 of our text, going back to Revelation 15, verse 1, seven angels having seven last plagues. You all see that? Going back to verse 1 of chapter 15. Seven angels having seven last plagues is an idea that comes to us actually from the book of Leviticus. And I want you to turn to Leviticus in the Old Testament, chapter 26. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Leviticus chapter 26. I don't hear your Bibles. Okay, I hear them now. There we go. Leviticus chapter 26. We're going to begin at verse 21. And the Lord is speaking now. And remember that Leviticus is in in, in actuality, you know, setting forth some of the the laws and the the, uh, uh, statutes uh, that the children of Israel were to follow and to keep. And he says here in verse 21, Then if you walk contrary to me... Now, let me just say that walking contrary to, to the Lord is going against what the Lord wants of you and for you. So let's call that rebellion. God says something is white, we say it's black. God says something is hot, we say no, it's cold. Uh, that's kind of a simplistic uh, reasoning here or, or, or example, but nonetheless, you know what I mean. Contrary. You're, you're, a, you're a, a young, uh, sassy child, and your parents say do this, and, and you say something else, or, you know, you don't do it. You know, you're, what do they tell you? Quit being contrary. Quit being rebellious is what they're saying. And then the bell comes out. Well, it should. You know, some people probably want to arrest me for saying that. This politically correct world of ours. If you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues. There, there it is. So something that comes from the judgments that God says, 
To whom is he saying it? To his own people, the children of Israel. So the lesson that the church has to learn, because we are the children of God through Jesus Christ, is that we are not to be contrary to what God is telling us to do. And Israel was our example of not doing those things. Do what God commands you to do because He loves you. He knows exactly what's best for you, so He tells you to do this. Do that. Be good, obedient children of our Lord Jesus Christ. But He said, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highway shall be desolate. I mean, God says, man, I'm serious about this. You need to not be rebellious and not be contrary. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. Now, how many of you want God to walk contrary to you? I wouldn't want that for anyone, not even my enemies. Because that kind of judgment is painful. I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Now, this is not as if God has never said to his own people, I love you because he has said it many times. As a matter of fact, when you go to the book of Deuteronomy, the next, uh, actually two more books down the road, there are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But when you get to Deuteronomy, you, you realize that the Lord says to them, you did. I didn't love you because you were great in number, because you were like the other nations. I just loved you. I loved you first. God loves his people. But he wants his people to draw near to him. Because there is this thing called sin that has really messed us all up. And now we're seeing the the effects of people that have just walked totally away from God. We've seen wickedness in every generation since the fall of man. Albeit the eight that were rescued by God at the, uh, in Noah's family in the ark for some time as the sons of Noah went out and populated the rest of the earth. But then after that, by the time you get to chapter 10 and 11 of the book of Revelation, you're dealing now with a whole bunch of people that are contrary to God building towers for worship of other gods and not the God who created them. God had to change their language. Give them all kinds of languages. They couldn't understand each other. Then they had to work at learning how everybody else communicated. Then there was Rosetta Stone. But still, that Rosetta Stone didn't change the heart of man. Because God had started by giving one pure language, didn't He? 
Keep that in mind as we get ready to close. If the children of Israel could walk contrary to their God and be punished seven times for their sins, how much more those who totally have rejected the God who created us in His image and totally rejected the Christ, Jesus, who came to die for our sins. So the, the seven last plagues are God's judgment on a disobedient and rebellious world. Lastly, the, the issue of God's wrath needs to be considered. The issue of God's wrath needs to be considered. Uh, the, the word for wrath, by the way, in, in verse 1 is the ancient Greek word thumos. Now it's spelled T-H-Y M-O-S. That's, that's the Greek spelling, but the Y usually is pronounced like a U, so it's thumos. And going back to Revelation 14 for a moment, we studied a verse where two words, were, uh, two words for wrath and anger were used. Uh, I'm just going to give you a portion of that verse. It's a very long verse, but in verse 10 it says, that he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath, which is the thumos of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and the other word is orge. So thumos and orge are two words that speak of the wrath and, and indignation or anger of God. Now, the word for wrath or thumos can be translated as a volatile, passionate anger. While the word indignation or orge is an anger from a settled disposition. A settled Disposition. Orge, well, in other words, from both positions, God is not just angry all the time. God, God, God just doesn't, you know, all of a sudden just fly off the handle. That's not God. That's the idea behind these words. There's a passionate anger and a studied anger. Or a studied disposition, a settled disposition, where God uses that anger as part of His justice. If God is just and righteous and true, then He has every right to execute judgment from His position as God. And God alone, in that particular sense, is able to execute this kind of judgment. Orge is the more common word for God's anger in the New Testament. And so in, in the seven plagues, the wrath of God reaches its end goal or aim. In other words, its intended target, so to speak. It is here that the very passionate wrath and anger of God will fulfill an eternal purpose. It isn't just anger for anger's sake. There is an eternal purpose for God finally bringing that wrath out in judgment. The Lord is not just blowing off steam. Can you all understand that? Because some of us in this room, I, I'm not going to say that I know you, but sometimes even I have had to struggle with this. Sometimes we have to blow off steam because we're angry at something, 
some of us might put our, our, our fist through the wall, kick, you know, a, a garbage can, end up going to the emergency for that, you know. Do you understand? We're saying, I'm just blowing off steam. That is not God. He doesn't just get angry for anger's sake. The judgment of God will complete its mission. The judgment of God will complete its mission. For nearly 2,000 years, the Lord has been gracious and merciful towards us. But the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world is coming back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah to deal with man's rebellion against Him. Thank the Lord that He has said to the church, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. There will be that voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. That when it is sounded, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and there we shall forever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. We're looking for the day of Christ as the believers in Jesus Christ that we are. I do want you to remember that today's day of grace is still here. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That same God we've been talking about that in the future has to bring judgment. But today, He is still a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Have we not experienced that in our own daily lives? How wonderfully merciful He is, how wonderfully gracious He is. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. Aren't you glad for that? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. I tell you, when I read this, I only can see the cross of Jesus Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is to the west. Well, do, do east and west ever meet? No! That's a long way for him to get rid of our sins. What a wonderful God we have. But with the judgments with, which are presented to us in the next few chapters of the book of Revelation, the purpose of God will be fully accomplished. That is, it will be filled up, complete. What the Lord is about to do 
through these last plagues is the subject actually of Old Testament prophecy. Now I'm going to read two verses from Zephaniah chapter 3. Verses 8 and 9. I'm going to close with this. Zephaniah 3 verse 8. The first part says, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. But then notice verse 9. For then I will restore the people's a pure language. One of the great judgments of man was that our languages were confounded because we chose to be like God. We chose to believe the serpent. But he says, one day I will restore the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. And I can tell you right now, little hint here, little secret. Uh, language is probably Hebrew, so get ready to speak Hebrew one of these days. But he says that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Judgment has its purpose. The fulfillment of all of God's judgments will have its completion. And the consummation of the ages will come and Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And that is yet to come in our study of the book of Revelation. So keep hanging in with us. Next week is, good. Next week is, is my challenge, my challenge, not your challenge, my challenge, to get through the rest of this chapter. Just seven more verses. So I think we can make it. Let's pray. Father, it is...